In this Meaning of the Minds discussion, I had the pleasure of sitting down with three of the world's leading experts on addiction, Dr. Gabor Mate, Dr. Richard Schwartz, and Professor Mark Lewis. Although their backgrounds vary widely, with Gabor initially training as a medical doctor, Richard as a family therapist, and Mark as a developmental psychologist and neuroscientist, all three of them have reached similar conclusions in their understanding of and their approach to treating addiction. In a lively and wide-ranging discussion, we explore why we need to approach problems with addiction not by asking what's wrong with it, but instead by asking what's right with it. Why both the self-indulgent and disease models of addiction are fundamentally flawed from a scientific point of view. The root causes of addiction. How the internal family systems model can improve our understanding of the mechanisms underlying addiction. How Gabor Mate's compassionate inquiry approach can help heal addiction by simply asking the right questions from a place of compassion and genuine curiosity. And why internal family systems therapy may be one of the most effective approaches out there for working with addictions and a whole lot more. This is one of my favorite podcasts to date. It was like getting to sit down around the campfire with three wise old elders and absorb some of their best wisdom. I hope you get as much from listening to this conversation as I did from recording it. Okay, everybody, welcome to this Meeting of the Minds discussion where we're going to be focusing on addiction. I'm joined here with uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz, uh, Professor Mark Lewis, and Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, guys, to get started, maybe if you could just tell, tell us a little bit about your background and maybe what sparked your initial interest in, in addiction. So maybe we could start with, uh, with Mark on this, if that's, if that's possible. Sure. Um... Yeah, well, I had serious drug problems throughout my, my late teens and 20s. I was finally able to overcome them uh, around the age of 30. And then I got into grad school and did well in psychology, got to be a professor at the University of Toronto, and things looked quite a bit better, um, and studied uh, emotion, emotion and cognition, emotional development, emotion regulation, and then switched over to neuroscience for the, the latter half of my career. And... I, I, I guess I brought these two strands together when I wrote my first book, um, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, trying to bring the neuroscience element to, to cast some light on my own biography, my own memoir, my set of nasty experiences in, the, in that dark world. Uh, and then I got further involved and became kind of, um, uh, 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 I guess, a, a, a flag waver for the addiction is not a disease side of the debate. So I, I spent a lot of time, gave talks, wrote a book called The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease, and tried to work out a, a learning model of addiction um, that was congruent with the neuroscientific evidence, but didn't require us to think of addiction as a pathology, uh, something wrong with the brain, but rather as a learning process that got incredibly deeply entrenched. Um, and that's, that's pretty much where I've ended up. And I, as I said, I, I'm now seeing clients who have addictive problems uh, in psychotherapy here in Toronto, uh, and I'm using IFS methods. So I've used the the IFS approach. Really, I, I've kind of I've dropped everything else pretty much because I find it the most effective way to to connect with uh, these urges that people find so difficult to to master and to and to understand. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Mark. So, who who wants to go next there? Um, Gabor, would you like to go? 
Well, why don't we go to Richard? Uh, Mark just spoke so well of the uh, IFS approach, so Dick is the one who developed that. So let's just go to him and then I'll follow. Okay. Uh, I developed IFS working with what you could consider an addiction because I was working with eating disorders at the time and um, a lot of my, we decided to do a study on bulimia and so that could be seen as an addiction to binging on food. And I was a family therapist and uh, decided to prove that family therapy could heal anything. And you didn't need to explore these inner, inner worlds of people because by just changing all these family relationships, we could heal them and found that wasn't true. And out of frustration began asking why my bulimic kids kept binging and purging and they started talking about these parts, what they call parts. And they would talk about them in ways that were scary for, at first for me because it sounded like they had a lot of autonomy and they had relationships with each other in, inside of them. And they could take over and make them do things they didn't want to do. And uh, I thought maybe these people are sicker than I thought until I noticed that I've got them too. And some of mine are addicted in some ways to not to food in that case or drugs, but to achievement, to working. Uh, and, and so I became curious and, you know, for almost 40 years later, uh, there's this internal family systems model, which, which basically takes a position that it's the nature of the mind, the nature of a healthy mind to have parts that they all have valuable qualities and, and uh, resources for us in our life, but they're forced out of their naturally valuable states by trauma and, and bad parenting, by attachment injuries, into roles that were maybe necessary when uh, we were in the trauma, but have become anachronistic for many of us. And, but still, the parts because they're frozen in time back during the trauma think they still have to keep doing it. And so, and they, they took taken on what I call burdens, which are extreme beliefs and emotions that came into you from the trauma and then drive the way they operate like a virus. So uh, there are protective parts and then there are parts we call exiles that are locked away that carry a lot of the pain and shame and terror from bad experiences and they're frozen in time too. And from my point of view, and I, I know that we agree uh, that it's those the pain of those exiles and the uh, and some of the terror that drives a lot of addiction, what's called addiction, which, you know, is just a way to stay higher than the flames of emotion. So uh, anyway, that's a very brief, concise way of thinking about IFS. Thank you very much, Richard. Okay, Gabor, whenever, whenever you're ready. Sure, sure. I'm a physician, now retired. And um, so in my family practice days, um, I saw some addicts. Uh, mind you, I probably saw more than I recognized at the time. And then for 12 years, I worked in Vancouver's downtown east side in Vancouver, British Columbia, which is North America's notoriously most concentrated area of drug use. 
So I worked with a highly addicted substance using population who were hooked on heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, now on fentanyl, of course, um, uh, nicotine, caffeine, marijuana. Um, so all manner of substances. And um, in my own life, I recognized that there were some addictive patterns, not to substances. But what I've learned is that addiction is not restricted to substances, and we do a great disservice when we limit it to substances. Addiction is a universal process that can manifest in, people have said, in bulimia, uh, in shopping and gambling, in uh, compulsive working, like Dick said, it can manifest in sexual evolving, it can manifest in eating, it can manifest in uh, internet gaming, and so on. So, so first of all, I, I recognize that there's a universal addiction process of which drug use is one particular example. Number one, number two, I agree with both of my colleagues here that addiction is not a disease. Um, because when you ask people, what does the addiction do for you? They'll say, it'll make me feel better. It'll soothe my stress. It'll soothe my pain. It'll numb me when I'm in pain. It'll give me social contact. It'll give me self-confidence. It'll give you a sense of control. What kind of disease does all these wonderful things for you? In other words, the, the fundamental problem is not the addiction. The addiction itself is a solution to a problem, which is the loss of control, loss of self-esteem, loss of social connection, emotional pain, and so on. In fact, these are all forms of emotional pain. And therefore, rather than... I never quite understood Mark's learning model as much as I've studied it and as much as I love his writing. I really do love his writing. Okay. For me, it's addiction is not a learning issue. It's a developmental issue. When people no, are hurt, hold, hold on, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can sort this out. Um, when people are hurt in childhood, that affects how their brains develop. The, the brain circuitry of self-regulation, of, of, of stress regulation, of opiates, of, of dopamine, incentive motivation, they're interfered with by negative childhood experiences. And then the question is not why the addiction, but why the pain? And so this is where Dick's model works for me as well, where the addiction is like a firefighter trying to douse the flames of severe emotional pain and distress. So I think in large ways, we're all on the same page. We might have some detailed uh, differences. My own approach is one of... Uh, what I the approach that I teach is compassionate inquiry, which really begins with just questioning. Not, not what's wrong with your addiction, but what's right about it? What does it do for you? And, and what qualities does it replace that are missing in your life? And how did you lose those qualities? Mm -hmm. That's my overall approach to addiction. Not why the addiction, but why the pain is my primary question. Hundred um, percent. Well, I think I'm just I'm really curious to ask. You know, or I think it's important to give some context here. What would you say the scale of this problem actually is on a societal level? You know, could we give people a bit of an idea of that? And why does it have such a powerful hold on people? Addiction. Why? Why is it? Does it have such an influence on human behavior? Well, let me take that one first. So, let's define addiction first of all. Let's have a working definition. I'm going to give you one. If the others want to embroider on it or disagree with it, that's fine. But in my view, addiction is a complex process, but it manifests in any behavior that a first person finds temporary relief or pleasure in and therefore craves, 
but suffers negative consequences in the long term and doesn't give up despite negative consequences. Or when they do give up, they suffer irritability, withdrawal, and so on. That's what an addiction is. Now, notice I said nothing about drugs. It could certainly and does certainly involve drugs, substances of all kinds. It could also be to all these other modalities. So when you look at an addiction that way, if you ask people, according to that definition, how many people will have had an addiction in their life? Out of a thousand people, 999 will put their hands up, and the one who doesn't is a liar. You know, so that's how widespread, almost. That's I'm exaggerating, but addiction is really widespread in this society. In fact, consumer society lives off people's addictions by selling them and purveying goods that nobody needs, but they think they need, which is exactly what the addicted state is. So it's a huge problem, much beyond the very severe problem of substance addiction, which in the uh, United States last year killed, in 2020, killed 93,000 people just from overdoses, yeah. not to mention all the diseases from alcoholism and cigarette smoking and obesity and, um, and all manner of mental health issues. So it's a problem that just is uh, pervasive throughout our society. That's how I would answer that question. 100%. Um, well, Mark, I'd like to sort of bring you in here as well. Um, how do you define addiction? And have you got anything to add about what, what uh, Gabor has said there? Um, I'm pretty good with his definition. Uh, and yeah, it's, um, I, I do always try to differentiate between physiological and psychological addiction. Physiological addiction to me is not as interesting. It occurs with respect to certain substances. It's obviously, opioids are the main uh, perp here, but um, there are other things that are just as addictive psychologically, like cocaine, for example, that are not physically addictive. You don't have withdrawal symptoms. You have mood problems after you stop, but your body's not going crazy for a few weeks trying to recover its, its balance. So I, I focus on the psychological aspects and I see the physiological aspects as icing on the cake. They make life even more miserable than it would otherwise be without this emotional support that you get from your substance um, because now you're physically miserable as well as emotionally miserable. And that's not a very nice combination. So it just makes it harder to, harder to stop. Um, and just to answer very briefly what Gabor was talking about learning versus development, I, I don't make a big distinction there. A lot of development is learning. I mean, it's hard to imagine development without learning. So I'm interested in uh, behaviors and motives and see, you know sequences that are recurrent. And if they're recurrent, then they tend to be self-reinforcing, self-perpetuating. They tend to build synaptic networks and reinforce synaptic networks more and more with each repetition. And so there's a lot of causal elements that continue to uh, reify that pattern of responding to stress and, and fear and shame and all the, the, the really, uh, really unpleasant, painful emotions that, that, we, uh, that we come with. I'd like to answer something that uh, Mark said, but I'd really love to hear from Richard first on the general social um, dimensions of this problem. And then there's something I do want to say in response to Mark. So I don't, I don't want to preempt so okay. you jump I'll, in. I'll be brief. Uh, I basically agree. Uh, I think anybody who hasn't healed their, what I call exile parts, is going to have to have some kind of uh, what we call firefighter activity that you alluded to, to, to stay higher than or to stay distracted from or to, to stay away from and keep contained these parts that without that activity, 
would burst out and recreate all the, the pain. You would be, go back into the past with the traumas and feel all the emotions of it. And so because our culture is a rugged individualist, just move on kind of culture where if you have a trauma, then you try to put away all the emotions and memories and sensations and so on not realizing that you're locking up all the parts of you that are still living back there. Since that's the cultural uh, sort of meme, then most people will have a lot of exiles that uh, they need to deal with. And some kind of addiction, addictive firefighter activity will be necessary. So uh, I would say most everybody. Wow. Okay. All right, if I can go back to something Mark said, I think there's an important distinction, Mark, that you're missing, if, if I may say. Uh, first of all, all, all addictions are physiological, okay? Because they all involve the brain's dopamine apparatus, as you well know, the brain's endorphin apparatus, the brain's stress regulation apparatus, the hypothalamic pituitary uh, adrenal uh, axis, and other brain, the, the, the orbital frontal cortex and its impulse regulation circuitry. So to say that addictions are psychological and physiological makes no scientific sense to me whatsoever, number one. Number two, we have to make a distinction between dependence and addiction. They're not the same. Dependence is when you go through withdrawal, physiological withdrawal. And as you suggest, that's very severe with the opiates. Uh, but you can also be dependent and not be addicted. For example, people who are given SSRI medications and they try and stop them, they go through severe withdrawal. That's a dependence, but it's not an addiction because they're not craving it and not using it to soothe themselves to temporary pleasure. So let's not fall into the mistake of confusing dependence and addiction. And finally, even what you call psychological addictions affect the brain so that you can look at the brains of, uh, of gaming addicts and they're different because of the gaming activity. So to make a distinction between psychological and physiological, to me, it's just a, a, a creating a gap that doesn't exist in real life. And I'm sorry, we seem to have lost Mark. I hope he comes back very soon. Yeah, I, I think he'll be back shortly. Um, in the meantime, uh, Gabor, can I just ask, um, you and Mark have both spent a significant uh, portion of your working lives uh, basically debunking the disease model of addiction. Um, why is it important that we let go of this narrative? Well, so uh, <clears throat> in society today, there are two dominant views. By far the dominant view is not the, not the disease model, but the choice model. Most people really think that people choose to be addicted. Yeah. And the yeah. law is based on that. If the law didn't believe that people are choosing, then what the heck are we doing punishing people? That's right. So that is the commonest view, not the disease model. Now, within the treatment industry, you're right. The disease model dominates. The disease model assumes that the problem originates in the brain and largely owing to genetics, which is, you know, genetically zero evidence for that. I'm, I'm saying zero evidence. Uh, there may be predispositions where people with certain genes might be predisposed to certain mental health conditions. But in the right circumstances, those people are no more likely to develop addiction than anybody else. And the same is true with animals. So that genes don't determine addictions. And the brain itself is the product of the environment. So that to talk about addiction as a brain disease ignores the fact 
that the brain develops under the impact of the rearing environment beginning in the uterus. So you can stress pregnant animals and their offspring will be more likely to use cocaine and alcohol as adults. Not because of any genetic disease problem, but because they develop stressed brains beginning already in utero. So the disease model, while it's stepped forward from the uh, choice model in that it, you don't blame people for having a disease and you offer them treatment and compassionate treatment, it misses the point that Dick and I, I think are both very adamant about, and I don't know that Mark would disagree either, that addiction is actually rooted not in the brain, but in life experiences as it affects the psyche and as it affects the brain. And so therefore to deal with the addiction, like Richard's model brilliantly does, and I hope I do as well, is not to focus on the addiction itself, but to focus on the dynamics that drive the addiction. And the disease model totally ignores that. 100%. One of the things I, I really I like that you said is that I think there's a vegan Buddhism that says, you know, that your, your, mind, your mind creates the world, but you take that back and you say, well, yes, it does, but also the world creates your mind. Could you maybe tell us about the significance of this, this statement? Well, you know what? Let me pass the racket to Richard on this one because he can address that as well as I can. And I'd actually be interested to hear from his words rather than mine because I've heard myself talk about it so often. <laughs> so we're talking about how, the, how before the mind creates the world, the world creates our minds. That's what we're talking about. Okay, well, first I want to say I always love listening to you because not only do I agree with you, but you're so much more articulate about all this than me. And I, <laughs> I think you are having a huge impact as we're, you know, learning from all of your success. And so it's, it just always warms my heart. Um, I, just to add to what you were saying, as you say, it might be for uh, some, some families, uh, there might be a genetic component to it. Uh, and that got way overgeneralized. And there, you know, there, I've worked with many families, as have you, where it, is, it does travel down the generations. And uh, that also, we have in, in the IFS world, what I call the concept, of what I call a legacy burden, which is uh, an extreme belief or emotion or activity that does travel down through your ancestors or through your ethnic group or is just around in the culture that we also absorb. It doesn't really have anything to do with genetics, but uh, there are sometimes there are epigenetic studies of. of mice and rats, for example, but in, in the work I do, we can find the parts of people that carry the legacy burden that they got from their father who got it from their father and so on. And then we can actually unload that and send it on back up. And, uh, and, and the addictive parts really change when that happens. So I'm with you, Gabor, that it's not, uh, you know, that both by unburdening things like that and healing these exiled parts, that it's not a disease in that sense. Yeah. And, and, this, and, and yes, and to show and to say that, you know, my grandfather was an alcoholic, my father was an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. 
yeah, things run in families, but what runs in families? What runs That's in right. families? Pain and trauma. That's right, what, exactly. What, what Dick calls the legacy burden. So it's not that I passed on a gene, it's that I passed on my pain. That's right. Because as I did as a parent, you know, and, and, and because until I've, you know, if I had met Dick, not that he had the model then, but if I had met Dick when I was 20 years old and if I was working with him before I had kids, then I might not have passed on my pain to the kids, to, the, to my kids to the degree that I did. But the fact is that I did. And there's a tragic example of that here in Canada, where 30% of the people in our jails are First Nations, Indigenous people, yeah. largely, often because of addiction-related issues. Yeah. These people had no addiction before colonization, yeah. but they've been so severely traumatized over the centuries until even up till today by the culture that tried to extirpate their very being and that, that their parenting practices were completely destroyed and now they pass on the trauma from one generation to the next there's nothing genetic about it it's just that we pass on our pain and therefore addiction is not the only response to pain but it's certainly one of them so the addiction is passed on but not genetically 100%. Um, so now you had maybe we've sort of we've covered it a little bit, but I'd, I'd like to maybe sort of focus now on, on root causes. And I'm particularly interested to, to ask you, Richard, about from from the IFS perspective and, you know, talking about uh, the protector parts and everything. Maybe if you could give us an idea of how you, uh, IFS would view how an addiction might develop or addictive behaviors might might occur in people. Yeah. So as we've been talking it's very difficult to get through uh, growing up in this culture and in, uh, in, in particular families without a lot of what I call exiled parts. And exiled parts, before they got hurt, are these inner children who uh, are delightful and playful and loving and open. And they're the ones that get hurt the most by what happens, by the traumas in our, our families and in our peer groups and just in living in this culture. And like I said before, once they get burdened with the, the worthlessness or the terror or the sense of being abandonment, being abandoned or the um, emotional pain, then we want to lock them away inside and just move on. And so, so when you have a lot of exiles, you feel much more delicate. The world is much more dangerous. So you have to have a bunch of what we call protectors who are other parts who ordinarily are just assisting us in our lives, but are recruited or forced into roles to contain the exiles and to protect them from getting triggered. And so most of us have, are familiar with that inner critic, for example. So that part is often yelling at us to try and get us to behave better and, and look better and perform at a high level. And, and so it's just trying to control us so we don't get shame, we don't get attacked by anybody or rejected. And there are a bunch of other parts in similar kinds of pre preemptive roles, trying to avoid anything that might trigger the exiles. And they might try to keep us from getting too close to anybody so they can't hurt us or keep us, uh, you know, focused on our appearance or keep us 
taking care of everybody else because and not take care of ourselves. So these we call manager protectors because they're all trying to manage our lives. So the exiles don't get triggered or burst out of exile. World still has a way of triggering our exiles. When that happens, you've got to have a backup plan. And then in come what I call the firefighters who are fighting the flames of exile emotion. And they do it in often in quite extreme ways because they think if they don't get you away from those feelings, you're going to die. They really most of the time think your life is at stake. So they'll and they don't care about the collateral damage they do to your body or to your relationships. They just know they've got to get you higher than those flames or distract you until they burn themselves out. Now, so the exile does its activity. I mean, the firefighter, it gets you drunk or it gets you high or it, it makes you write an article or it makes you whatever it does. Or a book. <laughs> or a book, <laughs> as we both know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that activity uh, activates people around us because they're hurt by it, including the book, actually. And so those people get upset with us, which triggers the critic who now calls us even worse names. And that goes right to the heart of the exile, that little young one who already carries a lot of shame. And so now the exile burden is even greater. And so there's more need for the firefighter. And so you get into that vicious cycle where the actual attempt to help you by by getting you high uh, creates more shame and more need for the activity for the, the addictive activity. And uh, so a lot of the times when we try to work with that, I'll actually start not with the addictive part, but with the critic. And if I can get it to calm down and step out of the way, uh, then we'll go to the addictive part. And in contrast to so many approaches, except for Gabor's, we honor the critic. I mean, not the critic, the, the addictive part. It, it literally saved people's lives most of the time. Because the next firefighter on the hierarchy is often suicide. That's right. So we, we honor it for its service, and we offer an alternative way to deal with the pain. So for me, Addiction is this is a, th th if you pardon the expression, a three part problem. There's the critic, then there's the exile who, who believes what the critic is saying about you and takes it in as, as shame. And then there's the firefighter who's trying to get you away from the shame and will use whatever it takes to, regardless of the consequences, to make you not feel that. But that that firefighter activity brings back the critic who comes back even harder. You know, in the case of the bulimics, it was, you know, you're such a pig. And then that goes right to the heart of the exile. So you're in that vicious cycle in, in addictions. That's, uh, that's really interesting. And I, I think maybe the point, I, I don't know if it is or not, but maybe the point to emphasize here is that in IFS, these protective parts aren't seen as a as a negative thing they, they serve a an adaptive purpose that kept us safe at a time when we were very vulnerable is that fair to say that's right you know they 
in a sense, they're anachronistic because they're frozen in these times when they were needed. And they still think, you know, if I were to ask one of you, how old does that addictive part think you are? Ask it how old it thinks you are. Usually you get a single digit. They really literally think you're still seven years old and you need them to do this for you. And, and when, if I, if, if I said, Mark, tell it you're, I don't know how old you are, but uh, tell it you're much older than seven, often they don't believe it. It's, they they uh, are, st are shocked, totally shocked. So some of the work is just updating them that I can handle that feeling now. I don't need you to do this job for me. Yeah, and but by the way, I was just talking not to my parts, but to my partner, my wife, who's helping me plug into various resources so I can stay with you guys. Oh, but I, I, I definitely understand what you're saying. And I've been actually using uh, that precisely that model, precisely that model. Uh, C. Sykes has been a consultant, uh, an IF, a high ranking IFS person who really understands addiction very well. And she's taught me a lot about how to approach it. And it's just, as you say, um, the firefighter is impulsive and wild and freedom seeking and is happy to get loaded, happy to get stoned and doesn't give a fuck about the consequences at all. And you try to come at that with a critic and it just blocks it, it just knocks it out of the way. It's not interested, it doesn't need to listen to this critical voice. Uh, and so you're, and so people with addictions are, um, they're trapped between these two motive forces that have very opposite, uh, um, very opposite intentions and goals and very different styles of, of reception and communicating and regulating. One is, you know, top down, you got to be good. You got to prepare. You got to be, you got to do the right thing. Don't you do that again. Don't you dare do that again. You better not. And then the other voices, the hell with you, man. We're going to get high. Right now we're going to get high because it's going to work. So you can just buzz off. That's right. it. And you, right. and, and also you don't know what's going to happen if I don't get you high. It's going to be That's terrible. Right. Yeah, right. the anxiety is building and it can go to really bad places. And that critic is steeped in what Gabor was saying about the willpower model. The critic really buys into that and says, you, you should be able to do this. You're, yeah. you're totally weak if you can't do this. Yeah, yeah. So. And you load that stuff on those criticisms and the result is that the exiles, the, the helpless younger, younger parts who are inside and not fully conscious are getting all the more uh, uh, panicked there's like huge piles of shame coming down and oh no, I can't stand be called those names again. And you just, you go more deeply into hiding. So this, this, this wild dialogue going on at the surface of the mind as it were is obscuring these deeper sentiments, needs, feelings of uh, despair, uh, anxiety and shame. I mean, criticizing yourself for the same thing day after day for months or years, that's, that's a heavy price tag to pay for anything. 100%. Um, Gabor, um, have you got anything to add here in terms of root causes? And maybe this would be a good time to maybe bring in a, a bit about trauma and the role that plays in addiction. Well, um, look, anything any of us say here is, is a mental model of something. And models are never the same as the actual thing. But models can be very descriptive and they give us access to working with whatever the real experience is. 
um, in my model, addiction, it's very simple. There's pain, then there's a response to pain. And um, there's different responses to pain. So in Dick's model, addiction is not the only response to, to, to childhood suffering, um, but it's one of them. It's a salient one. Uh, my, so what is trauma then? So trauma then is a wound that we sustain. So trauma is not what happens to us. Trauma is what happens to us inside of us as a result of what happened. In fact, trauma means wound. That's what it means. So where we're wounded, we look for ways to solve that wound, to to soothe it, to you know, and and um, there's many ways, and those ways always are useful and even necessary in the beginning, and then they become dysfunctional later on, and and they can show up in addictions, they can show up in physical illnesses like rheumatoid arthritis or or, or cancer or mental health conditions. But originally, they all begin as coping mechanisms. So what I'm really saying is it's always essentially very simple. We have pain. We have pain either because bad things have happened to us that shouldn't have, and those are covered beautifully under the adverse childhood experiences studies. And we know that the more adverse childhood experiences, abuse, neglect, violence, and so on, children, sexual abuse, children are subjected to exponentially the greater the risk of addiction not just of addiction, of all kinds of other problems as well. But we can also be wounded, not by what was done to us that shouldn't have been, but by what wasn't done for us that should have been. That's right. So if we weren't attuned with, if we weren't seeing who we were, if we were told that our emotions are not acceptable, then suppressing those emotions becomes a survival technique. And like Dick says, experiencing those emotions becomes life-threatening. Why? Because in the beginning, when our life depended on our attachment relationships, and if those emotions threatened the attachment relationships, the best we could do was to suppress them. And that was brilliant on the part of our organism. That's right. So I also yeah. honor all these coping mechanisms. And what I'm saying is that fundamentally, they're all coping mechanisms designed by nature to deal with trauma, and then, and even that critic, you know, um, th th there's something terribly wrong with me. It's a coping mechanism. That's right. You know, um, if, if, if as a child, I'm not loved the way I need to be loved, worse, if I'm hurt, there's two things that I can unconsciously assume. One is that my parents are incapable of loving, that they're against me. Or I can assume there's something wrong with me. If I work hard enough, maybe I can fix it. Which is the safer for the child to assume? So to assume the worth, my worthlessness, that there's something deeply wrong with me, is itself a survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. That's why we have to honor all these dynamics and all these coping mechanisms. And Dick calls them parts. I call them coping mechanisms. I have my own way of working with them. But fundamentally, it's all about recognizing the survival value and honoring the service that they did us. And my God, I know so many people that have told me that addiction, which nearly took my life, actually also saved my life. Because the next step for many people would have been the despair that drove them to suicide. That's right. Um, okay, so maybe this would be a good point in the conversation to transition into 
effective approaches for working with addiction and potentially healing addiction. And I'd, I'd, be, I'd be curious to ask you, Gabor, about um, how compassion and inquiry can be used in, in working with, with addiction. Well, compassion is a model. I mean, inquiry is a model that I developed over the years, and I, I never thought, like Dick, I don't think developed, Dick sat, sat down and said, how can I develop a model, you know? Um, it just came out of our work. And at some point, and really it has to do with just asking questions, which is the inquiry part, but compassionately without judgment, with acceptance. And I really think that fundamentally, um, that's the most important part of what any of us do, whether Mark or Richard or myself, how we approach our clients. It's not, the method is important, but it's not as important as the degree of compassion and, and acceptance and, 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 and valuation of the true worth of that individual that, that, that comes into the picture. And so the, the compassionate part is not to judge anything, not to judge any uh, coping mechanism, any parts, as you would say in IFS, um, any aspect of ourselves, but always looking, the inquiry is, okay, why did you come along? And, and what's, what's uh, purpose are you serving? And furthermore, what does it cover up that, that, that true essential self that we all cannot lose as long as we're alive? is covered over by all these coping mechanisms and false beliefs. And so asking the right questions will get you not only to be compassionate towards your coping mechanisms that you hated, it also gets you, it also removes the barriers to experiencing yourself as you really are, which is the ultimate goal of any psychotherapy. And what I tell my students is that your job, number one, is um, to help the individual be in a compassionate relationship with themselves in the present moment, not coming from the past, but in the present moment. And number two, your second job is to get yourself fired as fast as you can. And fired not because you're doing a terrible job, but because you've done such a good job. 100%. So it's really, it's asking the right questions, but doing it from a place of, compassion and curiosity and yeah that's is that fair to say that's exactly what it is okay um and then uh I, i'm not i think we, we could maybe talk about how ifs can be used in, in training addiction and um mark maybe we can go to you you here because you've spent your whole life you know researching the neuroscience of addiction and coming at it from the point of uh, a developmental psychologist as well and out of all the different approaches you've tried you've found that IFS to be one of the most effective, if not the most effective um, ways of dealing with it. So I'm just curious about how you arrived at that and um, how you're finding uh, working with it and with your clients at the minute. Yeah, well, um, at first, it's, it's really interesting to hear how uh, in sync Gabor's way of talking about this is with the IFS. Um, uh, metapsychology, very much in sync, and, and the centrality of compassion, compassion, curiosity, being there for these parts that are, you know, that are in one way or another misfiring, um, malfunctioning, helpless, and, and scared. So, like for me, my original training was in psychodynamic psychotherapy, and I was a developmentalist as a as a researcher. Um, and then when I started to do more and more therapy, I used emotion-focused therapy and some stuff from uh, ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, tried different things. 
but mo mostly I was interested in dealing with people with addiction problems, addicts, you know, I don't like to use that word because it's often derogatory, um, but, but the, the, to me, the genius of IFS is nailing that the firefighter, nailing it and recognizing this is a part that has a very distinct style. It's impulsive, it's, it, it's looking at the uh, anxiety and how to overcome it right now. It's not looking at the present, at, at the future at all. It's not looking at the past. It's not trying to keep, thing, keep the boat steady. It's just trying to uh, feel better. That's all it's trying to do. And it's, it's a part for me as someone who used to have drug, serious drug problems, that firefighter part of me, when I was four or five years old, I used to run to the ravine. I used to run out of my house and go down to the ravine and you know, jump on the ice and try to get off just in the nick of time before it would break, you know? Uh, I mean, it's, and it's the same part. It's the same part that just wants to be free and crazy and feel uh, released. So, um, so what, what do you do with it? So the critic is not working. That part isn't being listened to. It's just being uh, uh, shoved aside. Where do you send this compassion from? How do you connect it to the suffering? And in IFS, what you do and is um, you, you use the, sen this, the self, this capital S self, which is the, what they call a part that's not a part. And what people who meditate recognize as a kind of internal, central, stable, peaceful uh, place that feels like it belongs here. And from there, you extend compassion to all, all three parts. The firefighter, I get what you're doing. I understand, you know, yes, you just want to get wild and crazy. But you know what, you know, we've done this like a lot of times and it really does kind of screw things up. So maybe we can just pull it back a little bit. So you, you connect with, uh, tune to, and also help to modify. With a critic, yes, I get why you're so upset and angry. Of course you are, because this keeps leading to disastrous consequences. Like you're kind of panicked. I, I understand why. So you, you send compassion, but the, I guess the third and most important recipient is the, the exile who is just pure shame and, and anxiety and cringing down there inside. And you try to connect with that part from this inner self and say, I'm here, I'm here for you. You're not completely isolated, which is, it sounds bizarre. When I try to explain this to clients, I'll say, you know, this sounds like alchemy. I know it sounds like Byzantine, but and I know Jack has said this too. It, sound, it's, it sounds crazy to talk to yourself in that way, but you can really do it. And you can provide an attachment relationship to these helpless, desperate parts from in here that doesn't require anybody else in the room, doesn't require anybody else to connect with, you can give that love, acceptance, and compassion. And then these, um, these highly emotional parts calm down. They just start to feel safer. And when they start to feel safer, the firefighter doesn't have to go to such extremes anymore. The critic doesn't have to be so upset and angry. The whole system starts to settle down. And I think that that really is why IFS, why I have found it to work so much better than really any any other form of therapy. That's really interesting. And it seems that it's so important um, if you're going to be uh, using this to work with addiction or, you know, um, calming excise or firefighters or whatever, um, that you need to develop this sort of relationship with the self with a capital S. Like that seems to be super important. And um, Richard, uh, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on this. You know, if maybe some, uh, have you ever had the experience of someone has tried IFS and they've had difficulty with um, connecting to that uh, self with a capital S? And have you got any thoughts about how to maybe strengthen that relationship if someone is 
struggles to get there. Certainly, and I'll, I'll speak to that in a second, but I, I just want to mention what a treat it is for me to hear Mark describe his uh, experience with the model. And also, uh, whenever Gabor and I talk, I'm always amazed at how basically independently, pretty entirely independently, we came up to such similar ways of understanding all this and working with it. And uh, so it, that's always a treat for me as well. Um, and I, I forgot your question. Oh, have, have I run into people where you can't access cell? Yes. Uh, not that you can't, but where it takes a long time. And their protector parts are very entrenched. And they're afraid. They're like, uh, in family therapy, we used to call them parentified children, parentified inner children. You know, they, they carry so much responsibility. They lost trust in self because self didn't protect during the traumas. And they think they've got to run the ship and they've got to deal with the world. And the idea of them giving any power over to self is terrifying. And so often uh, I have to talk to those parts directly, at what we call direct access, and from myself and listen to them and and you know at some point form enough of a trusting relationship with me that they're willing to just give it a try and and separate and when they separate it's the same damn self that pops out with all the eight c's uh, and then we have to form a, a a repair between that self and this this protector and also a lot of appreciation and you know, that can take a year in some cases before you even get an inkling of self. And those people are usually uh, real severe complex trauma survivors who it wasn't just one trauma, it was daily, it was over and over. And they just came to, these protectors just came to think, I've got to run things because if I don't, here comes the, the other shoe's going to drop any second. And anyway, yeah. 100%. And you've got a book, an audio book. Um, I think it's called Greater Than the Sum of Your Parts. And maybe that could be helpful in helping people sort of develop this relationship as well. Got a book yeah, thanks for mentioning got, it. And, and, got a book and called No Bad Parts as well. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <more>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the book that you just held up is um, an elaboration on the audio book you mentioned now. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, so we've only got a, a few minutes left, guys. Um, I, one of the things we've talked about in this conversation is about, you know, the, this this um, society's problem with addiction is at a societal level. And I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on what can be done to change the narrative we, we have around addiction and what we can do to improve things going forward and maybe uh, Gabor have you have you any insights here that you'd like to share on that first of all what's happening is that there's been much more trauma awareness in the world right now um, our mutual friend um, Bessel van der Kolk's book on trauma the body keeps the score has been on the New York Times but settles this for over a year now uh, Bruce Perry's book with Oprah what happened to you is on a bestseller. So there's in society there's increasing trauma awareness. So one of the things we have to do 
is keep elevating the level of trauma awareness in a society, in all institutions, in medical schools, in education, uh, certainly in the law, uh, certainly in the realm of social policy. Um, um, I, I dare say that my book, which I'll also take the liberty of holding up in the realm of hungry ghosts and addiction has gratifyingly made uh, an impact in the, in the addiction world. In, in, in helping people see the connection between trauma and, and addiction and its social sources. So that if you look at right now, the overdose crisis is not about individuals. It's also about the fact that hot, whole sections of the economy have been hollowed out and you've got these deaths of despair that uh, Case and Deacon write about, Deaton write about, uh, owing to changes in the economy and and the social alienation so we're, de we're dealing with a huge social problem here um and we have to look at and and we have to begin with that recognition that this is not just individual trauma it's not just individual psychopathology if you want to call it that not just individual uh, coping mechanisms it's also a huge social problem in a society that number one fails to meet human needs and number two traumatizes people and number three profits off all that so that's my next book which i won't mention the title yet because it won't come out for another year but we have to look at the large social question that's what i would say and um i just want to put in a plug for my own work here so that it's great i mean dick and i are doing a program together actually beginning this week for sounds true on comparing contrasting and working with Compassion Inquiry and IFS. And those that are interested in Compassion Inquiry can certainly check out the websites for that. We've had about 2,000 people in over 80 countries studying it in the last two or three years. And so I just want to mention that as a modality. Uh, and it's not in competition with IFS. In fact, we've had Dick coming and teaching to us to our great benefit. So it's a wonderful collaboration. And Mark, uh, you know, for all our ostensible disagreement, your book is one I often talk about and, and quote, and I, I carry passage of it, passages of it um, copied out on my laptop as I travel, because I'm often citing you. So uh, it's nice just a great. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Um, Mark, would you like to add anything here about addressing this at a, at a societal level? Yeah, I mean, it's complex, uh, but obviously, uh, as Gabor has, has um, talked about it. It's, I think one really clear vector here is that people are often, uh, they reject, isolate, humiliate people who have addictions for a very good reason. It's because people find addiction to be so aversive, so challenging, so scary. So why do they find it to be so scary? Because the idea of losing control of this firefighter, this impulsive warrior who tries to help you at the expense of everything is an incredibly volatile and dangerous situation. And I think we all recognize that at some level that uh, I don't wanna go there. And as, as my colleagues have said, this is something which touches many, many lives, not just the identified addicts. I don't wanna go there. I wanna stay in control. I wanna keep the, uh, the manager, the business manager in charge here. And so people are repelled by it. And that's why addicts are treated so badly, I think. 100%. And uh, Richard, just to, anything to conclude here? Yeah, basically, I'm agreeing with both those guys. Uh, I'd like to think 
not only of individuals through this map with the managers, firefighters, and exiles, but you can apply it to countries or even bigger. And if you look at the United States right now, we've never had so many exiles. The, the income disparity has, in our history, almost never been this great. There have never been so many people having to work three jobs and just barely making it with three jobs. And so there's lots and lots and lots, and, and there's lots of pain for other reasons too, including the legacy burdens of racism and patriarchy and so on. So there's huge, massive amounts of exile pain. And when any system at any level has that much pain, they have to have both firefighter activities and also uh, very polarized manager parts, which we have in our government. And uh, and also that whole willpower paradigm contributes to all of that because we're in the same vicious cycle in the, in our country that we are in our heads when it comes to addiction. So anyway, that's just a sample of what the way I think about it. Okay. Can I make a quick comment? Um, only when you said about the three jobs, there's a YouTube. Um, segment you can watch with George Bush Jr. at a town hall meeting and some poor woman is asking uh, will there be old age security because, uh, when I retire because um, I'm working so hard right now and, um, and Bush says to her well you're, you're working hard she says yeah I got three jobs and Bush says appreciatively oh three jobs how uniquely American and everybody applauds. <laughs> that's the attitude <laughs> yep, that's right that's the that's the managers. That's right. Maybe maybe it would be best if we could get some of these politicians some IFS therapy and some compassion inquiry. Maybe that would help as well. Um, well listen, hold on. If I may say, I, I, in my new book, I talk about this. And what's, what's very characteristic of politicians is they don't do self-inquiry. Like Trump said, I don't want to look at myself. I don't want to find out what, what is there. Hillary Clinton said the same thing. Sarah Palin said the same thing. Margaret Thatcher was the same. So you're never going to get these people. You know, self, you know, and, and there, there's very few amongst the politicians. We, we elect people who are not self-reflective. Sure. That's why they can do all these terrible things. Wow. So I'm afraid that'd be a nice idea, but I don't think they're going to knock in on our doors anytime soon. <sighs> We can try. Anyway, um, I just want to say a huge thank you to all three of you today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I find it really, really illuminating. So um, before we go, is there anywhere you'd like to send people online? Any resources you'd like people to check out? Um, uh, book, books, any, anything you want to mention? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just say, Dick, in case you don't want to blow your own horn too much, there's so much on the IFS website. And these days, it's, I think the popularity of this approach is exploding. You can't get into uh, the workshops and, and trainings anymore. They, they have double waiting lists and they say, don't even try to get on the waiting list because they're also occupied. So what are you gonna do to learn more about it? Well, there's 20 or 30 books on the website that explore different aspects of IFS, some for practitioners, some for the uh, regular people and, and lots in between. So I think that's a, that can be a very rich, valuable resource. Thank you, Mark, and, and uh, I'll, I'll mention the website, which is ifs-institute.com. Uh, we do run a, a, I mentioned two things. We run a 
online program called the Online Circle for people that can't get into the training or interested in you know, introduction. And that's opening October 20th, so uh, people can look into that. And then second, um, we have our annual conference starting in about a week online also, if people are interested in that. And uh, um, yeah, Gabor did the service of holding up my book. And I, I, I want to say also that uh, he and I are going to be talking shortly on his amazingly popular show. Um, and uh, the wisdom of trauma. Yeah. What? Wisdom of trauma. Wisdom of trauma. Uh, I'm nervous because it's the biggest audience I'll have ever spoken to, and uh, and his his work also has become amazingly popular. So you know I'm really thrilled that we we can join forces this way, because I think together we can have much bigger impact than separately. And uh, as we've been talking, our work is so compatible. So, seems to be. Yeah. Thank you very much, Richard and Gabor. Just to, just to finish off. Well, so I mentioned Compassion Inquiry. Um, it, it's a course that's been taken, as I said, by two thousand people in over eighty countries by now. Uh, just today, we have a first session of four hundred forty people from I don't know how many dozens of countries. It's an online program for therapists, and it's very intensive. It's very demanding. It's time-consuming. It's not for the faint-hearted. And the first three months, the first three modules are not about what you do with clients, but how you get to your own self before yeah. you start working with clients. So that we do that three times a year, and you can just look up at the Compassion Inquiry website. There's also my own website, Dr. Gabor Mate, where all my and. There's this film that Richard alluded to. It's called The Wisdom of Trauma. When, he, when it aired in June, within a week, it was seen by over 4 million people. Now we're showing it for the second time, along with a whole lot of great interviews. I spoke to Bessel yesterday. I think later on today, I'm talking with Dick and a lot of others, on, and several others on addiction. So um, yesterday we did an interview with, with Ashley Judd and, and, and um, Jamie Lee Curtis and... Uh, the rapper Mona Hyder on women and trauma and addiction and so on. So that's available online, www.thewisdomoftrauma.com. And um, a year from now, I have a new book out, which I'll, I'll, I'll start to flog closer to the time. Thank you for this conversation. And I really appreciate it being with my two um, really respected colleagues. Maybe I could just mention, I can't compete with those numbers, but I do have an online... <laughs> blog and i do get a couple of hundred thousand people coming in and coming and going and i've been working on this for 10 years maybe some of it's more theoretical more conceptual more back you know the uh, um the the background but also the, the experience the understanding the uh, the neuroscience and how it melts with the psychology so it's uh, i think you can find it by googling understanding addiction and my name mark lewis and you know there's stuff there that can be interesting to people uh, who want to explore this this domain and sorry mark and i also just contributed to a new textbook haven't we sorry which, which oh do didn't you mean I, didn't i both you and i contribute to a new textbook on addiction yeah the one by uh nick yeah. heather was the first editor and what's, the, what's about, the title of it it's, it's about evaluating the disease model of addiction 
right. Yes. And, and clearly many of us are not happy with this model and want to want to uh, um, move quite a bit further than that. So there's a lot of people in that book who have lots of interesting perspectives to share. Brilliant, brilliant. And Mark's actually got a series of blog posts on uh, IFS and addiction, which is probably a good follow-up. We'll link to that in the show notes as well after, after this conversation. But you guys, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been great, great to speak to you all. Thank you.